It's longer time. Lager time. Poems, stories, and thoughts. By me, Paul Cree. Who else? Greetings, bonjour, what's happening? Welcome to Lager Time, legions of lager lights, grab your tins, your bottles and your pints. My name is Paul Cree and this is my little podcast and blog where I share bits of my writing, stories, poems, thoughts, sometimes music, etc. So what's been happening? A fair bit. Last week I was in rehearsals for a theatre show, Romeo and Juliet, at the Polka Theatre in Wimbledon. It's a modern retelling set in Merton and is all done through live music, rap, beatbox, singing, guitar and a loop station. The show opens this Saturday and is aimed at young people between 9 and 12, but there should be something for all the family in it. There's over 26 songs in the show that I have to learn as well as almost a hundred cues that I need to remember. I'm one of the understudies but will be performing between the 10th and 14th of April much later in the run. Alongside that it's been my usual work this week with Dream Arts and the 4th Monkey Drama School up in Finsbury Park. Before I get round to introducing the next piece in this little meditations series i wanted to hark back to the intro post for this latest season excuse me and also the reason why i started this latest series where i talk about reading books to chat a little bit about what i've been reading as i suppose it's somewhat relevant to this i tend to have a couple of books on the go at one time one fiction and one non-fiction or light-ish book. I recently finished ploughing my way through Mr. Good Times, which is the autobiography of soul DJ Norman Jay, the man behind the Good Times sound system. It was a decent read as it charts the development of lots of the music that came out of London from the 70s onwards. The book was given to me as a birthday gift Oh God, birthday gift, birthday gift, get it right Paul, from a good pal of mine, Richard Purnell, who himself is a writer and wrote one of my favourite blogs about old books with the old dick and balls scribbled in them. Richard has recently started his own Substack blog, which you can find a link to here or in the notes of the podcast. He's a QPR fan, but we'll let him off for that. So in that Norman J book... When he talks about his younger years, getting into football and the like, he mentions reading the skinhead books by a writer called Richard Allen. The way he talked about them was that at the time there was some kind of street phenomenon, as in lots of working class teens were reading these books, which took my interest. And last month, whilst having a few beers with my two oldest brothers and a few of their old mates, one of them, Dom, was by chance telling me that he was rereading all those skinhead books. He consequently sent me a link to a BBC documentary from the 90s about the books and the writer Richard Allen, who seemingly no one knew much about 
and was pretty far removed from that culture, yet he wrote a boatload of these cult classics which have become collector's items. So I'm currently reading the first skinhead and it's alright. There's a lot of violence, racism and sexism. The main character and his mates are horrible. It pulls no punches in that regard, but if it's a snapshot of those times, even if it is somewhat exaggerated, then I think it plays a part. I certainly don't find myself rooting for the main character. He's an anti-hero in that respect, but I'm enjoying it. It reminds me a lot of Irving Welsh books, many of which I've read, or that BBC film made in Britain that Skinny Man sampled on his first Council of State of Mind album. I wonder if those people were influenced by those books. And aside from Skinhead, I'm ploughing my way through a book I first read a couple of years ago called New Class War by Michael Lind, which came out in 2020, I think. If you want to get a good understanding of the political climate of the last few years in the UK and the US, it's well worth a read. And I've also been reading a book by the comedian Rob Beckett off the back of other comedians' books, Ramesh Ranganathan and Jeff Norcott, all of which make me laugh a lot more when reading what they've written than they do when they perform their stand-up. I've no idea why that is. So, continuing with these pieces I've been writing, inspired by the 12 books of Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, this week I get stuck into a quote from Book 5, and it's called On Mad Skills Versus Try Hard. Almost halfway through this series, hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. And as ever, if you like this odd little niche thing that I'm doing over here, please recommend it to a friend. And if you fancy whipping the wallet out, you can make a small donation on my Ko-Fi account for the price of a lager, and I'll accept regional price differences. Buy me a lager is what I've named it. These Substack writers go for buy me off coffee or whatever, but I don't feel like that's me because I don't drink coffee and I'm not really a sit in a cafe writing type person. I've digressed there, but anyway. There's a few copies left of my first book, <laughs> The Suburban, which you can grab on my website alongside a couple of other bits. Then, of course, there's some music on Spotify, Apple and videos on YouTube and all that cable. So, I'll leave you with the piece now. Keep it lager. Peas and taters. Oh, and uh, probably be... I may get time to stick the next one out. I've already written it. I uh, wrote it a while ago, but I need to go through it really. But I might get time in the next week. Depends. I may have to go back into rehearsals, but I don't know. I'm sure none of you really are that bothered whether or not I put one out next week. But there you go. It's nice to have some kind of regularity. But yeah, keep it lager. Peas and taters. Oh. <laughs> Went a bit garage and see there.
cannot admire you for your intellect. Granted, there are many other qualities of which you cannot say, but that is not the way I am made. So display those virtues which are wholly in your own power. Integrity, dignity, hard work, self-denial, contentment, frugality, kindness, independence, simplicity, discretion, magnanimity. Do you not see how many virtues you can already display without any excuse of lack of talent or aptitude? And yet, you are still content to lag behind. Or does the fact that you have no inborn talent oblige you to grumble, to scrimp, to toady, to blame your poor body, to suck up, to brag, to have your mind in such turmoil? No, by heaven, it does not. You could have got rid of all of this long ago and only be charged, if charged there is, with being rather slow and dull of comprehension. And yet even this can be worked on unless you ignore or welcome your stupidity. Book 5 Passage 5 Back in the mid-90s, there was this striker at Millwall called Chris Malkin. I remember we signed him from Tranmere after we got relegated from what was then Division 1, I think, which is now the Championship. I think. He was a target man, very tall, scored the majority of his goals with his head. Of course. I don't remember him being prolific, but he would get 10 to 15 goals a season. To me, he didn't play or look like a professional footballer. What is a professional footballer even meant to look like, to a 12-year-old at least? But to me, back then, he looked about 50 like he should be wearing some cheap, ill-fitting suit, cheerily teaching science in a secondary school to a load of disinterested, mouthy 12-year-olds, constantly mugging him off. This gangly, awkward guy with dark hair that jumped with all the grace of a giraffe on a bouncy castle. At least that's how I remember him. But the main thing I remember thinking about Chris Malkin was... How is this geezer a professional footballer? Here's the thing. Making that statement would suggest he was shit. He wasn't. He was an effective striker at that level who had a decent career in the lower leagues. I think for my simple young mind, to be a pro and a striker at that, you needed to have loads of mad skills. As in overhead kicks, multiple stepovers, taking on 10 players and scoring hat-tricks. Not that Millwall ever had anyone like that, except maybe Christoph Kinne, the smoke in Belgium. All the while looking like you're the popular kid in school that gets all the chicks, like the smoke in Belgium, Christoph Kinne. There are a couple of kids I knew growing up who I remember as being amazing players. Too good for the playground, too good for the school team and too good for the local teams. They both got on the books at professional clubs, Crystal Palace and Southampton, I think, but never quite made it as pros. How? I remember thinking. They've got mad skills. I never quite understood it because when we were at school, what these kids could do with a football was out of this world. So it often made me ponder. 
If these kids' mad skills aren't mad skills enough, how much in the way of mad skills do you need to make it as a pro? Much later in life, in my early 20s, there was another guy I played five-a-side with who played non-league for a stint. He was amazing. So much so that our main tactic was just give the ball to Matt and he would ping goals in from impossible angles using both feet whenever he felt like it. I believe he got as far as the reserves for a sixth-tier side but never even made it at that level. So again, I'd think... How much mad skill do you need to make it as a pro? And what is the average mad skill level of a pro? Insane skill? Not until many years later did I start to think that maybe there is a bit more to it than just being technically brilliant with a football at your feet. Obviously. Just not to me. There's that famous Alex Ferguson quote which goes something like Hard work always overcomes natural talent when natural talent does not work hard enough. Now in the case of Chris Malkin, I have no idea if this is true or not, but I imagine he was on that training pitch every day, putting a thousand percent into every drill, following every instruction, exactly. Attending every charity appearance or children's ward trip at Christmas, boots always clean, performing every task to perfection. And a cursory glance online tells me he's running his own physiotherapy practice, which would suggest he would have had to undergo training for that to get certified, which was probably hard work. I think this is how the Neville brothers made it as pros at Man United. Their tactic was just work your bollocks off and be diligent as possible. In my mind, these are the people that mainly make it in the world of professional football and probably life in general. Even the tiny percentile of players who genuinely have mad skills, like a Ronaldo, have probably dedicated their entire lives to this football caper, obsessively, since they were kids. For the last 15 years, give or take a few where I had to go back to part-time, I've just about made my living on and off in the arts, working as a writer and a performer of sorts. Prior to this, I've had a number of different low-paying jobs, some of which were pretty tough at times. This job, at times, believe it or not, can be tough, but not tough like grafting on a building site in the depths of winter eight hours a day for not a lot of dough. The toughness of what I do is in the insecurity of it and the occasional difficulties of trying to work with vulnerable people. I'm self-employed. Most of my money is earned through running workshops or working on community projects, often in and out of educational settings, working with mainly young people but not always, showing them what I do or working with them to create something, theatre, poems, music, etc. And occasionally I get paid to write or perform something that gets performed in some sort of performance venue with lights and that. What I do is related to shows. Stages, lights, dusty velvet curtains, I guess. So occasionally I'll meet people who will ask what I do. When I tell them, sometimes they say something like, I'd love to do what you do. Which I'm never quite sure how to respond to. But sometimes they'll go on to elaborate. Because I write songs. I paint. I write poems. My mates say I'm funny and I should do stand-up. 
I was amazing in my school play as the donkey. I wrote this amazing song once. None of which I have any problem with. Until it occasionally goes beyond this into the trickier conversational waters of I'd love to do what you do. But how did you get to do it? You. If I had your luck, I would be amazing at what you do. What I often interpret as being implied here is I'd be much better at it than you. If I was as lucky as you, you don't deserve to do what you do. You're not good enough. The latter example, being the bitter one, is quite rare to be fair, but it has happened on a few occasions. The most common comment is I'd love to do what you do. Implying something is stopping them from doing something they want to due to something beyond their control, like some invisible force of unfairness, which I've somehow avoided. When these rare conversations take place and get to this point, being the judgmental prick that I can often be, my response in my head to their statement of longing is, No, you probably wouldn't want to do what I do. Because, chances are, You're not going to want to spend half the time skint and the other half worrying about where the next load of work is coming from. You probably like holidays and probably won't want to go years without a holiday to go on. You probably expect holidays every year. Or, more importantly, whilst you're in the formative years of any artistic pursuit, long before you get paid even the smallest bit of money for your art, you're not going to want to make the necessary sacrifices like choosing to not go out with your mates on a Friday night or play computer games or watch Love Island when you get home from work so you can work on this weird little whitey thing you do which they probably won't understand or mug you off for. And then, once you've got a bit of something that you might want to share to the world, pull your ass around a load of half-empty open wax on a cold Monday evening when no one is listening or you are routinely heckled by drunk locals who think you're a cunt just for stepping in front of a mic or whatever the laborious soul-destroying equivalent is for other art forms. All of which is necessary in order to develop and hone your craft. It can also be pretty boring and repetitive. It takes a long time to get even remotely good at something, especially when you don't have that much talent or self-confidence to begin with, which is true in my case. I've met a few people in this game who may well have had a shiny spoon hanging out their ass to begin with, or who've had the red carpet rolled out for them in terms of funding and opportunities, with neither examples having ever earned any of it. But most people I know, who are successful in this, have had to work their asses off and made plenty of sacrifices in order to get where they are. Or they just didn't have any mates in the first place. Even then, they still had to graft and wade their way through the self-loathing. For all my faults, and I have many, This is the one thing where I can say I've worked pretty hard at it and made plenty of sacrifices. And look at me. I'm flying, mate. Well, not quite. I'm surviving. I've survived just about. But it helps to keep things in perspective for me when I think about the vast majority of people who have an artistic craft or passion but never make anything from it. Not that financial gain should be the objective, but it does help, because you need a lot of time to pursue this crap and still keep the roof over your head. For me, 
part of my drive to make a career out of all of this was that I thought it was the only thing I was remotely good at. I wasn't academic, I had no qualifications and since dropping out of college I'd worked in a string of low paying shit jobs which I myself was mostly shit at. Trying to pay bills and have some sort of life on top of that was really hard. It was a pretty miserable existence, minus a few laughs, most of which involved me being drunk or stoned. Though there were plenty of times I did turn this down in favour of staying in to do this. The only other times I remember being happy was sitting on my own, beavering away trying to write rap, rap lyrics or stuff like this. At least doing this, skint or not, I've created some stuff that exists in the world that I'm proud of. Met tons of people, had some great experiences and made loads of memories. Being a brain surgeon, plumber or programmer just weren't on the cards, mate. Maybe this was the only way to live some sort of meaningful life. But to get this far has involved a lot of sacrifice. A lot of the gigs and opportunities I got in the early days were probably because I was in the right place at the right time, so I got lucky in that respect. But I had to put myself into the place in the first place in order to be in the right place and make sure I had something to offer should someone notice me there. Most of the work I get now is from people I've worked with before or my name has been given to someone because I turn up and do the best job I can. And I do feel like I have a unique skill set and a load of experience under my belt, so I have something unique to offer. What I didn't have at any point was mad skills. I had some ability which was undeveloped, as in I could perform a bit, rap a bit and write a bit, but nothing polished or super stand out. I may have stood out amongst my friends, none of which did anything like this, but that's easy. Some people are happy being that geezer in the local pub who plays guitar, is well funny, does magic tricks. But that was never enough for me. Putting myself into places where there were loads of people, like me, doing something similar but with more talent or honed skills, experience and confidence kicked me up the arse to get much better at what I was doing and made me realise I'm not special at all. Just another prick in the arty haystack. See what I've done there. So I had to graft. And even then, it's not like I've made it, whatever that means. When working with young people, I often come across ones with natural talent and naturally, they'll shine in the groups they are in and the groups will want to elevate them to front and centre, even when they don't deserve it. Whenever I see them not trying that hard, I try my best to implore to them, it's just not how the game works and try and paraphrase that Alex Ferguson quote, as opposed to blowing smoke up their ass and letting them sit on their laurels, because life ain't that long. And in the end, has little sympathy or patience for a 40-year-old with a rapidly fading good looks who should have been a footballer, painter, actor, rapper, because they had mad skills. It's longer time. Yay! Lager Time, Poems, Stories and Thoughts, by me, Paul Cree. Who else?